You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. When people emigrate to the United States legally, they must be naturalized if they want to be citizens. That is, they must be formally accepted and established as citizens with all the rights and franchises that citizens have. This is done by swearing an oath of loyalty to the United States of America. This is a moving ceremony, even with all our terrible faults as a country saw a TV reenactment of it recently, and it was still moving to me in spite of all I know about the wickedness and degeneration of our country to see people swearing allegiance to the United States of America taking an an oath of loyalty to our country. In the scriptures, there is a theme which reminds us of this. It is the not a people now a people theme. As he says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved, and shall it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there shall, shall be called sons of the living God. That's Romans 9, 25 and 26. Paul speaks of this process also of becoming a part of the people of God in Ephesians 2, 11 to 19. You will want to turn there. There he claims that Gentiles, to whom he is writing, have become the people of God and thus citizens of the commonwealth of Israel. He also implies that many of those who claimed the name of God's Israel were only so-called Jews. I want you to turn to that passage as I ask you, and we will read it together. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. 
My general theme this evening is the Commonwealth of Israel. Now, you may be saying, didn't you talk about Israel last week? And that's true. My subject then was the two Israels. And just to forewarn you, I'm going to speak about Israel next Lord's Day morning, too. I hope you'll think it's an appropriate message for Christmas Eve morning, if that's a thing. If you think that I'm getting my subject from the headlines in our news feeds, well, you would not be entirely wrong, but you would, not also, you would also not be entirely right. There are two things that I want you to see in this passage this evening with regard to this matter of the Gentiles taking their place in the commonwealth of Israel. I want you to see the summary of its bestowal. I will survey the whole of the passage that I read. Then I want you to see the substance of its blessings. And here we're going to focus in on those things that become ours, according to verses 12 and 13, as a result of becoming part of the commonwealth of Israel. I hope our study of these two things will prove a great blessing to your souls. First of all, the summary of its bestowal. How did Gentiles become part of the commonwealth of Israel? Paul's argument here moves us through four phases or points of emphasis. And there is, first of all, what we might call the former alienation. This is found in verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is explicit about whom he is thinking of primarily in this passage whom he is addressing. You see it clearly here. It is Gentiles, fleshly, physical Gentiles. We really do not comprehend in our day and age all that this term meant to a good Jew like Paul. The Gentiles were those outside of the covenant people of God. They were the denizens of the wild and wicked, uncovenanted nations of the earth. They were the uncircumcision. They possessed neither the mark nor the grace symbolized by the sign of circumcision. Yes, they were despised and shunned by the people of God, Israel. And finally, they were not possessed of the blessings the blessings which gave Israel life and meaning in this world. They were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Those are the blessings to which I want to return in the second part of this message. That is what the Gentiles were, far from God, far from the people of God, and far from the salvation of God. But notice in the second place the transformed situation in verses, verse 13. <clears throat> Paul's point is that for those Christian Gentiles to whom he is writing in Ephesus and in other parts of Asia, all this has now been changed, transformed. 
They have gone through the Nata people, Nawa people, transformation. This is the thrust of verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This verse naturally raises the question, to what have the Gentiles been brought near? The clear answer is in the text right there. It's that they have been brought near to all the things from which they were said to be excluded or separated in verse 12. They are no longer separated from all the things Paul has specified in the previous verse. They are brought near to them all. That is to say, made recipients and partners in all those things from which they were formerly excluded. Paul thus affirms that they are united to the Christ, citizens of Israel, participants in the covenants of promise, given hope, and associated with God in the world. Once more, let me say, those blessings will be examined in more detail in the second part of this message. But now Paul's argument moves to a third phase. I call it the gospel explanation. How did all this happen? Paul's already implied it in verse 13. Paul's already said that it's by the blood of Christ that Gentiles have been brought near. But how and in what way did the blood of Christ bring the Gentiles into the people of God? In verses 14 to 18, he describes exactly how that happened. And here, Paul describes the double reconciliation which took place through the cross of Christ. And the crucial words are found there in verse 16. They are, quote, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Paul's idea is that Christ died for and represented both Jews and Gentiles on the cross. He represented both the Jewish and Gentile members of his people in his one fleshly body. When he died on the cross, both were at the same time and in the same way reconciled to God. God's wrath was satisfied in his one body against them both. Peace with God was established for both Jew and Gentile through the cross of Christ. As a result, peace has been preached by Christ through Paul both to those far away, Gentiles, and to those who are near, Jews. Both are then given the spirit that came out of the fountain of Jesus' cross and his reconciling work. Both Jew and Gentile, by that spirit, have access to the Father in the one Christ. This, then, is the double reconciliation in the cross of Christ, Jews and Gentiles have been reconciled to each other, and they have together been reconciled to God. So all this brings Paul, in the fourth place, to a double conclusion. This conclusion clinches everything which he has been saying. It makes his idea clear and his teaching indisputable. 
And so look at verse 19 where you have this double conclusion. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. I have said that there is a conclusion here. That's clear from the conjunction translated, so then, by the New American Standard and ESV and by the NIV, consequently. But I've also said that there is a double conclusion. The first conclusion is that you are no longer strangers and aliens. Throughout the passage, and now also here, Paul is speaking to Gentiles, Gentile Christians. He said that explicitly in verse 11. Obviously, Paul is saying that these Gentiles are no longer outcasts and excluded from God's people. But there is something about these words that gives even more impact to them, and that is their meaning in the Old Testament context. Here are the ways in which the word stranger is used in the Old Testament. Ruth 2.10, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am, here's the word, a foreigner. Lamentations 5.2, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. And here's how the word alien is used in the Old Testament. The word designated one who lived in the land of promise, but had no part in the promise. One who lived in the land of the covenant, but had no part in the covenant people and was excluded from its blessings. They could not eat the holy Passover. Though Jews could not be held as slaves, aliens might be held as slaves. Listen to these texts, Exodus 12, 45. A sojourner or hired servant shall not eat of it. There's the word, alien. They, they could not, even if they lived in the house, even if they were your servant, they could not eat the Passover. They were not part of the people. Leviticus 25, 45, and 46. Then too, it is out of the sons of the sojourners who live as aliens among you that you may gain acquisition. Out of their families who are with you, whom they will have produced in your land, they also may become your possession. You may even bequeath them to your sons after you to receive as a possession. You can use them as permanent slaves. But in respect to your countrymen, the sons of Israel, you shall not rule with severity over one another. This is what it meant to be an alien. It meant to be one who had no protection from slavery. Not getting into the lawfulness or propriety of that right now. It's just the fact. Aliens could be held as slaves. Israelites could not. Aliens could not eat of the Passover because they were not of the covenant people. And now, I hope you see even better, the significance of Paul's first conclusion. Strangers and aliens were those who lived in the land but had no right to enter the formal assembly of Israel, had no right to enter the Kahal Yahweh of Israel. 
Now says Paul, these Gentiles, these Gentiles, you Gentiles to whom I am writing, you are no longer like that. They were no longer foreigners who lived in the promised land, but had no part of the blessings given to the people of God. Those who had but no people were now God's people. And this is Paul's second conclusion. The second conclusion is found in the last half of verse 19. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. The phrase fellow citizens takes us right back to verse 12. It recalls the phrase commonwealth of Israel in verse 12. Let me say it for you in the Greek, you'll hear it. In verse 12 we read of tes politeis to Israel. And now he speaks of sum palatai. In both those phrases, you have the Greek, word, the Greek word from which we get our word polity, the Greek word from which we get our word politics. In other words, commonwealth and citizen are built on the very same Greek root. It is the one from which we get those words. And the point is clear. These Gentiles are now fellow citizens with the Jews in the commonwealth of Israel. That's what they have. Paul proceeds to emphasize the new intimacy which the Gentiles have with God by saying they are now part of God's household. They have been adopted in God's family. They are with the Jewish Christians, with them, among them, part of them, the sons and daughters of God. But with this summary and understanding of Paul's argument before your minds, I want you to come to my promised second part of the sermon. And uh, uh, I promise I've made a couple of times in this message. Come and now consider the substance of its blessings. What were the blessings that came to men because they were part of the commonwealth? of Israel. And those blessings are summarized in verse 12. Look at them again. Separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. These things from which we were once excluded are now ours in Christ. I believe that each of these five blessings focus on the promises and the future promise to Old Testament Israel. They, lo they focus on the promises, I'm going to say that again, and the future that was given to Old Testament Israel. I want you to examine with me them with me one at a time. They are first no longer excluded from the Christ. It's difficult to do justice to this massively important biblical word, Christ. It speaks first of all, and of course, of the anointed one. He is the one anointed by God to be the final prophet, priest, and king of God's people. But of course, then it speaks of him as the savior. As such, the anointed prophet, priest, and king, it implies the idea of savior. It is by being our prophet, priest, and king that he saves us. He is called Jesus is this Christ, 
and he is called Jesus because as the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. But he is both of these things as the one who is appointed to bring in the final kingdom of God and to consummate history. The Christ, the Christ is the history consummator. He is the world ender. The Christ is the last and second Adam. The Christ, he is the meaning and conclusion of history. But there's even more. Finally, there are these indications throughout Old Testament prophecy that this, the Christ, was something more than just a man. He is Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew 1.23, Isaiah 7. He is the fulfillment of Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This Christ, this Christ is the one in whom at the end of history and at the consummation of all things, he is the one in which God finally shows up. But all of that brings us into the commonwealth of Israel. If the first of the blessings of which we are made partakers is the Christ of the promise, the second is the people of the promise. Israel is the people and nation planted in history to look forward to and be the means of bringing into the world the baby who became the Christ. Remember Romans 9, 4, and 5, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever, amen. The commonwealth of Israel, that was the people established to keep alive the promise in the dark Old Testament days. And Gentile Christians, including ourselves, are now part of the people of the promise. The promise is not completely fulfilled yet. As the commonwealth of Israel, we are appointed in these dark days to keep the hope of that promise alive. And that brings us naturally to what Paul calls the covenants of the promise. Yes, that is exactly the way Paul puts it. Read the Greek literally, and that's what he says. The covenants, plural, of the promise, singular. He speaks of many covenants and one promise. I suppose that this promise is the one given at the beginning to Adam and Eve of the coming seed of the woman. This promise was nurtured and typified and predicted in different ways in all the Old Testament covenants. And once we Gentiles had no part in such covenants, and no part in, these, in this promise. But now we too, with Adam and Eve, put our hope in this promise. The promise that was given to them 
that through Christ alone and through grace alone and through faith alone, the only way salvation has ever been proclaimed to men after the dreadful fall in the garden, through Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, we are now participants in that great promise. The covenants of the promise are now ours. But we have been brought near to hope. Hope. All these blessings of which Paul has been speaking, as I've said, are forward-looking. Hope is clearly forward-looking, right? Can I put all of that another way? These promises, these blessings are eschatological in character. They're about the last things, my brothers and sisters. This becomes even more clear in the fourth blessing to which the Gentiles have been brought near. It is hope. Oh, how important is hope. Can there be life without hope? No. It's because our countrymen, so many of them, have no hope. No hope. The suicide is more and more rampant. The people say no good alternative than to take their own lives and to end it all because they are hopeless and without despair. That's why suicide is more and more common in our land. That's why we have to preach the gospel to people because their lives depend on it, not only the life to come, but their life here. Without hope, there is no life. Without the promise of hope, there can be no life. We need hope. And that's what we have, brothers and sisters, having been brought near uh, through Christ to all these blessings. We now have hope. Everything seems, doesn't it, to conspire against hope in our day. Listen to the liberal news channels, there's no hope. Listen to the conservative news channels, no hope. Fear is on every side in every news broadcast. It's, in fact, fear is marketed to make money even and to get us all to buy those end time supplies we need because of the coming collapse. Thus people all around us look to the future with the opposite of hope. They look to the future with fear. but it's not necessary to be consumed by fear. We have, as Gentiles, been brought near to hope. We have hope for the age to come. We have hope in the return of Christ, and we have, therefore, hope in this age for God to build his church and keep our souls and hold us fast. And thus Paul has emphasized that we have the Christ of the promise, the people of the promise, the covenants of the promise, and the hope of the promise. But finally he says, finally he says that we have the God of the promise. The God of the promise. We were without God in the world. Dreadful words, aren't they? Without God in the world. But now we have, we are brought near to God in the world. And note it well. It's not that we only have God when Jesus comes back. 
It is that we now have God in the world. Even now, he says to us, hear the words in your heart, people of God. Even now, he says to us, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Even now, he says to us, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Dear believer, be comforted by the fact that you have the very God of the promise as your God. He is your God. You are his son or daughter. You are not without hope, and you are not without God in the world. <clears throat> well, before I'm done, I have four very simple but important, I think, grand lessons that we should learn from this passage. First of all, we learn something that is fantastically important in our present context in the world, and that is that Christians are the Israel of God. You may be very confused about what's going on in Israel and Palestine, here is something the Bible is clear about. Christians, yes, even Christian Gentiles, are part of the Israel of God. They're part of the Commonwealth of Israel. The passage we've been looking at is explicit as anyone could wish. The center of God's purposes in the world is not found on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The center of God's purposes is not in the Middle East. The center of God's purposes is here in 100,000 churches like this one. We are the commonwealth of Israel. You may feel all the support in the world for the tragedies which overtook the nation state of Israel. Or we may not feel that way. Nevertheless, the fact is that the nation-state called Israel in the Middle East is not what God thinks is the commonwealth of Israel. His church is the true, the new, and the reformed Israel. But then a second lesson is this. We are born aliens outside of God's Israel. We are without God in the world, without hope, outside of the covenants of promise, and without the commonwealth of Israel, and without the Christ. And that's the way we are born, children, that way. We are not near to God in the way we're born. We are far from God and far from hope. You're not by nature the way you were born close to God. You're outside of the promise and his people. Something needs to change. You need to have your position outside of Israel and without God and the world altered. And that is what you need most. But a third lesson is this. We need to be citizens of God's Israel. That's what we need. What needs to change is that you need God's promise and you need to be part of God's people. 
Only when you are, I coined this word, I hope you appreciate it, only when you are supernaturalized. Like that word? Only when you are supernaturalized as a citizen of the commonwealth of Israel will things be better for you. Will things be right for you? But then finally, fourthly, how can that happen? Christ is the way that can happen. Christ is the way in which we can become God's Israel. The path into the people of God. The path to the promise of God. The path to God himself is through the cross of Christ. We have, that's the way we have access by one spirit to him. It's by receiving and resting upon the Christ that you may make your way into the people of God. Here's the great question. Will you take Christ and come and come by the God-given path into the Israel of God? Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the wonderful and blessed teaching of your word. Thankful to have it opened into our eyes and hearts this evening. Thankful to be together as this local, this local expression of the Israel of God, the commonwealth of Israel. Bless our time together. Continue with us. Apply your word to the hearts of your people, we pray. Apply your words to the hearts of those who still need to be brought near by the blood of Christ to all these great blessings. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.